This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Father, as we engage with your word, we would ask that your spirit would stir us, that you'd mess with us, that you'd change us, press on us areas that Maybe we're not stepping into the fullness of what you're inviting us to. Please, please, uh, do your work. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. I, I rolled in at 11.30 last night from um, a three-day-long bachelor party float on the Colorado River. My brother's getting married um, later on or at the beginning of June, and this was his uh, celebration with uh, 16 of his ridiculously crazy friends. So if you can picture four rafts all tied together, forging their way down the Colorado River from Grand Junction into Utah, um, that was my experience over the last few days. It can be summarized in one word, shenanigans. And so um, if I look tan, that's just our lighting. I'm actually fried. So, um, but I, I, I had a few moments out there uh, away from the guys. And, and these, these guys are, are men, 16 who, men who, who love Jesus, who gave my brother just this beautiful um, uh, send-off and, and blessing and covering as he steps into marriage in a few weeks. But, but I had this chance to get away in my own little boat, ducky, they call it, um, for a little while. And as I was cruising down the Colorado River, I, I had the chance to, to look up and to see this massive sky and, and these contrails that were being left that just contrasted against the bright blue of that desert sky. And I had this question that just sort of burrowed into my soul. And the question was this, when was the last time I paused to just look up? And as we journeyed along, um, we entered into this canyon and this just ruby red walls of this canyon, just breathtaking, beautiful. And we're on this river that's not, not moving fast. Praise be to God. Um, it wasn't moving fast, but, but as I sat in this boat, you can feel that, that there's this, this gentle power that the river has. If you spent much time on the river, you know that feeling that, that it may not be moving fast, but you know you don't want to mess with it. And it, is, it knows where it wants to go, and it is forging away. Even though it's gentle, it is powerful. And as I'm sitting in this raft, this, this word starts to come to mind about this river. And the, and the word is just is rhythm. That it just has this wonderful rhythm to it where it's getting somewhere. You better believe it. And it is working, but, but it's going at its own pace. And I started to, I started to wrestle with this question that I think God prompted in my heart as I sat in this boat. And the question was simple. It's just this, Ryan, is your life in rhythm? 
Sometimes it doesn't feel like we're working really hard and, and the distance that we're making doesn't seem to add up to the work we're putting in. Or maybe things in our heart and in our soul just feel a little bit off. And as I started to reflect on that, that rhythm of this river, I was pointed back to the study I've been doing over the last few months in the book of Acts. And if there's one word that I think pretty well summarizes the life and DNA and ethos of this early church, it's this, it's, it's the word rhythm. They sort of, they entered into really well, they entered into this Jesus way of living. As they um, remembered and reminded each other that Jesus walked out of the grave, it had huge implications for their life. And so it was really this rhythm that included two things, both presence, where they would bask in the glory and the presence of God, that they would sit in his presence and receive from him what he would shower over them, and practice where they would step into the life that God was calling them to live as they were carriers of the kingdom of God that was present and at hand. So imagine it's sort of like a dance, this early church. Their, their rhythm was, was presence and practice, was presence. And you see this at Pentecost, God pouring out his spirit into the life of the believers and practice. We looked at it last week. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to giving, to being generous, to breaking of bread, to celebrating in one another's homes. They both received really well what God wanted to pour into their lives as the people of God. And then we read about them living it out. You know what I started to think about? I started to think about how hard that is to do well. Because we often focus on one or the other. So so you'll have churches and and communities of believers that are great practicers. They do the things of the kingdom really, really well. They cross all of their T's and they dot all their I's and all of their boxes that they have, they can check them off. We call those churches fundamental churches. They, they, They do very well. And then we have people, we have communities, we have churches that are are great at sitting in the presence of God. That that enjoy the presence of God, that pursue the presence of God, but, but if God doesn't show up in the way that they want, oftentimes the question is, God, where are you? It's more of a sensationalism. And what we see in the life of the early believers is that this pendulum wasn't too far on one side or the other, but they really engaged in this dance with the Spirit of God where they sat in his presence well, and then they stepped into the world around them very, very well. And I'm intrigued by the passage that we look at today because what we see in this passage is that the people of God actually start to become and live like the people of God. And so I've had this question as I worked my way really slowly down the Colorado River. Ryan, what does it look like for the kingdom to burst forth through this body? 
What, is that, what does that look like? What does it look like to receive from God in a way that we can reciprocate what he pours into our souls as he declares the kingdom of God is at hand? And see these practices. They're all designed, if done well, to remind us of two things. One, who God is, and two, who we are in light of who God is. They're designed to open up the floodgates of our hearts and our souls that God can channel into them his grace and his mercy. That's new this morning, we started with that. That's new this morning, his love that he speaks over us, the hope that he has for us, the dreams that he has for us, the destiny that he has for us. And they're designed to align ourselves with the kingdom that's at hand. The question becomes, what does it look like to really live that out? I'm glad you asked that question. Let's turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. As we engage in this dance, practice, and presence. Verse 1, Acts chapter 3. Now, so quick time out. Sorry. You're like, it's going to be a long sermon. It is. I know. I'm sorry. But... Here's what Dr. Luke, who's writing this account of the early church, the movement of Jesus through this group of believers, here's what he wants you to know. That what happens in Acts chapter 3 is an outflow of what happened in Acts chapter 2. That what flows out of healthy community where people love each other, where they're devoted to God and to one another, where they're generous with their stuff, where they sacrifice, what flows out of the being the people of God is what we're going to read. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Um, These are gifts that people would give. And so he was strategically placed, this man. He was strategically placed right in line as people went to walk into the temple. He's strategically placed at a place that you can sort of figure out where it is based on Jewish literature and maps in the back of your Bible. The beautiful gate. It was, it was a gate that weighed so much you'd need 25 full-grown men to move it. It was made of Corinthian brass. Two doors that opened, and the function of this gate was that it was intended to um, declare, right now you're entering the, the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, and then you'll enter into the temple court. And, and so, in essence, this beautiful gate <laughs> declared to people, you either can or you cannot enter. So this man... This man for his whole life, he's about the age of 40, we learn as we journey through the book of Acts. Who knows how long he'd been placed there. But I had this question as I read this, is this gate beautiful to this man? Because of his condition, he's not allowed to go in to worship in the temple like many of the other men who are his age. 
So this gate, although it looks pretty and it's shiny, really keeps him out. And so Peter and John, as they walk along this road to practice this rhythm that they'd been a part of as they were in Judaism of praying three times a day, and this is the third time they would pray at 9 a.m., at noon, and at 3 p.m., that's where they're going, they encounter this man. I wonder if they started to think in their head, well, the, the, the curtain's been torn. Like God isn't confined to this temple area anymore, but, but he's on the move. And Peter and John, they start to engage this man who's being kept out of this quote-unquote presence of God by this religious system that says because of your condition, you can't go any further. I wonder if any of you maybe feel like that today. Because of the things that have gone on in your life, you feel like, well, I'm, I'm sitting close, but the God of the universe would not want to engage with me. See, sometimes religion actually prevents people from making it, making it into the life-changing presence of God. Well, Peter and John, they look at this man and they, they go, this is not okay. This is not okay. We are carriers of the presence of God. We're carriers of the kingdom of God. His kingdom is breaking forth. And their thought, their declaration is, this is not okay. So here's what we start to learn from Peter and John, is that people who truly understand the gospel, where where it takes root in their soul, and I'm not just talking about maybe a decision we make at church, but I'm talking about the gospel actually starting to inform who we are, the way that we view the world, the things that we do, not just the presence, but practice. People who understand the gospel passionately love people. And so they asked this question, well, well, how do we step into this man's life? How do we become a part of his redemptive story? I don't know about you, but, but that's a great question for us all to ask. It's a great question for me to ask. My, my, my guess is it's a great question for us as a community to ask. What does it look like? How do we do that? Stepping into people's Redemptive stories as we carry the kingdom of God and the spirit of God wherever we go. There's a few things I want to draw out for us from this passage. Here's the first. That our life of worship opens us up to a world of impact. It's no accident that this, these men are practicing this rhythm, this, this practice, if you will, of coming to God and soaking themselves in prayer and submitting themselves to him saying, God, will you use me? Will you work in me? And that practice of worship opens them up to the question, God, how does your presence want to change this situation? See, I think the best thing you can do for the world around you, will you look up at me for just a second? The best thing you can do for the world around you is become an obsessed worshiper of Jesus. Where he starts to, from the inside out, change you, where where worship becomes your weapon, where as you're engaging God in prayer and in worship, he starts to channel through you kingdom that he wants to break forth. That's what happens in Peter and John, this act of worship, it starts to 
open our eyes and it opens our hearts. And, and here's why, here's why. Let me, at least this is how it works for me. As I worship, we just sang a song, um, Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here. And as I do that, as I sing that, I'm going, God, I, I confess I'm completely unworthy of your love. Completely unworthy. Like not, nothing in me, even just a tiny sliver of it except your image stamped on me is what's worthy. That's it. Bowing here. God, as I, as I rest here, I start to hear you speak over me. I start to hear you speak over me, not words of condemnation, but I start to hear you speak over me. I love you. I've redeemed you. You're mine. I'm for you. I'm your advocate before the throne of God. Right now, you are my child. And so then I start to think, well, if there's nothing in me that earns that or warrants that, God, is there a chance that maybe, just maybe, you feel the same way about every single person I lay eyes on? And his not-so-quiet answer to my question is, yes, yes, it's true. And as we rub our soul up against the heart of God, it starts to change the way that the landscape of our lives look. The best thing you can do is be an obsessed worshiper of Jesus. And and worship never ends here. You know that, right? You know that, right? That, that God would say in the book of Isaiah that the true fast, what I, what I really, the worship I really long for is that you would break forth, that you would um, care about the oppressed, the orphan, the widow, the fatherless, that you'd give your bread to the hungry. That's, that's the worship. As you rub up against the heart of God, that's what starts to happen. And see, Our life of worship opens us up to a world of impact. And so we're going to see in Peter and John the impact that they begin to have. Verse 4. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Now, please, 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 don't miss the significance of this moment. Because this is where, um, spoiler alert, they're going to heal this guy, okay? But this is where that begins. This is where that begins. This man who maybe hasn't been looked at, who's been looked past all day, even by people who have given things, they say, look at us. We look at me for just a moment. There's power in eye contact, isn't there? There's power in looking at somebody and saying, I I see you. Because I think the question the world is asking followers of Jesus and everybody for that matter, but I think we have a better answer where my cards are on the table, is do I matter? Do I matter? Do the things that I think matter to you? Do the words that I say matter? Does does who I am matter to you? It's a question people are asking. And I don't know which means more to this man. 
But I think this moment where he looks up and he sees Peter and John actually looking back at him is significant. Significant. The scriptures are going to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 uh, through 16, Paul writes this to the Corinthian church and he says, Christ's love compels us. It, it, it ties us up. That because one died, Jesus died, we no longer view people from a worldly point of view. And his death, his resurrection, his life, his spirit starts to change the way that we view the world. I'd say it like this, our validation of others' humanity, the fact that that God's image is stamped on their soul, starts to put the love of God on display. When I was doing college ministry, we would... um, we always had clubs at the schools that we worked at, on the campuses we worked at, and we would have club days where we would set up our tent with about 60 other organizations, and I always referred to it as the gauntlet that people had to walk through the student center where there's tents lining each side and um, people handing stuff out. And here's what would happen at the beginning of that walk of the gauntlet. College students would take out their phones and they'd hold them up to their ear and they'd walk by. Now, they're not talking on the phone. Here's how I know that. College students don't talk on the phone. They text. They don't, I don't, most of them don't even know that that phone can be talked through to somebody else. So they're, fa- they're just faking it. You know, they're walking through head down. Why? Because they don't want to be engaged. And I think that maybe paints a picture of the way a lot of us go through our day. Don't bug me. I mean, how ironic if they walk by him. Don't bug me, we're on our way to church. I don't have time, I don't have, I don't have space for that in my life. And so I wonder what type of power the church would have, you would have, if you started to look people in the eye. Let me tell you, if you already do that, you have significant power because what you say when you look at somebody is you matter. And your story matters. Not just to us, but it, but it matters to God. See, a heart captured by the gospel plus eyes that are wide open equals the beginning of the healing that God longs to extend through his people. Some of it's emotional healing, some of it's mental healing, some of it's physical healing. But it all begins with this willingness to look at somebody. And that happens when we realize Jesus has looked at us. And he's seen us. And he's declared over our lives, you're mine. You're mine, bought, paid for, because I love you. And so the story continues. Peter says, I have no silver and gold. Which at that moment, for this beggar, is devastating news. Right? I have no silver and gold. Well, he's like, that's why I'm here. That's why I have my little um, hat out for you to put something in. Like, come on, come on. I, have, I have no silver and gold, he says. And it starts to, I think, stir in this guy what Peter and John do is they believe something better for this man. 
Because his sort of level of what he wants is right here. And what God wants for him is right here. And Peter and John and their faith, they fill that gap. And they start to take out the paintbrush and they start to paint for this man a better world. Here's what it could look like. The kingdom of God's at hand. Here's what this could be. I started to wonder though, what if they'd had silver and gold? I mean, what if they'd had it? And what if they gave that? And what if they gave only that? How devastating. See, sometimes I think that we we think our limitations are actually limitations. It just means we're forced to be creative. It means we're forced to ask maybe deeper questions. How devastating if Peter and John would have given silver and gold instead of extended a hand. Faith in Jesus said, get up and walk. See, I think our limitations can actually open up our greatest options. So you got in your bulletin when you walked in, you, you got a few um, little green post-its. They're actually leaves. It's gonna make sense in a moment. You got some green post-its and, and in a moment, I'm gonna ask you to write down on one or a number of those things that you have because Peter and John's response is, I have not gold and silver, but what I have, I'll give to you. And see, every single one of us, we have something that as God dwells inside of us through his spirit that he longs to channel through us to the world around us. The question is what? And oftentimes we answer that question, what do you have with, let me tell you what I don't have. Right, well, I'm not the richest and I'm not the smartest and I'm not good at organizing and I'm not that hospitable. And we're like, we know, you know. Um, and so, <laughs> so the, the question is not, what don't you have? The question is, the image of God is stamped on you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the spirit of God lives in you. And so regardless of how old or young you are, you have something that puts his kingdom on display and invites people into it. Sometimes our, great, our, our biggest limitations are actually our greatest gifts because it forces us into spirit-led creativity. God, if you are moving and if you are present and if you dwell with, within me and if, my, if your kingdom breaks forth through me, how do I step into that? I don't have all this, but what do I have? So when I was in college, we, uh, I lived with 12 of my best friends and we were walking along the campus at Colorado State one day. And we encountered this man, and he was holding a sign. Um, he was clearly homeless. He had a big, long beard, long hair. And um, his sign said, what do you think about Jesus? And we thought, we like this guy. So, so we struck up this conversation with him. And we ended the conversation with, hey, if you ever need a place to shower, um, our house is open. And we gave him our number. And about a week later, Jerry was his name. Jerry called, this, called our number, and we answered the phone, and he's like, hi, this is Jerry. And we're like, Jerry who? Um, Jerry who wants to use your shower. So that, that's an interesting start to a conversation. 
And so he said, sure, Jerry, come on over, use our shower. And as we got to know him better, as he came back and we had him over for meals, and he said, hey, when, when it gets cold, can I, can I pitch my tent in your backyard? And we said, sure. We, got a, we have a big backyard, nothing's there. So it got cold. He pitched his tent there and he says, hey, when it, when it gets really cold, could I sleep on your couch? And we said, sure. So my parents are coming over and I'm like, dude, move all the stuff. Like, take the tents down. This is really, they're gonna think we're weird, you know. Um, but he says, hey, I have three friends who I used to live in community with. Could, could they sleep on your other couches? And we said, sure. And for two years, Jerry and three of his friends lived at our house and used our kitchen to cook dinners for homeless people. Now, I may be not proposing that. My, my place in life right now sort of prohibits me from doing that again. <clears throat> but, but, I only tell that story to, to say, what if we started to ask God? What do we have? Maybe it's an open room. Maybe having an open room in our home is American. I don't know if it's gospel, though. Um, maybe we have... Maybe we have encouragement that we're willing to speak. Maybe we have time. What do we have? What do we have? See, here's what Peter and John had. Verse six. He says, but Peter and John said, I have no gold, I have no silver, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Wow. Wow. I, I think I give Peter and John a little bit too much credit sometimes. I often read this story and I know the end of it so I figure they did too. But I wonder if as they bent down next to this man and said, take my hand, I wonder what's spinning around in their head. Like, God, are you gonna, are you gonna come through this time? And, and the question for us is, are we willing to go out on a limb so that the kingdom breaks through through us? Are we willing to risk our own pride and our own self-sustaining nature that we often operate in? Are we willing to be made an idiot for the potential that the kingdom might break through through us. Here's what we see. Here's what we see is our willingness to risk, to ask big asks of God, positions us for a move of God. So, so here's where I'm at, just cards on the table. I 100% with all of my soul believe that God still heals today. Uh, I've seen it happen. So, so theologically, God, I'm on board. Practically, I'm battling with God. Why do you sometimes choose yes and why do you sometimes choose no? Because if you've been here a while, you know my story. We buried my mom a few months ago. Well, it's a lot of months ago now, but it feels like a few months ago. And I know Jesus could have healed her. I know. This side of heaven. 
And so here's what happens in my soul, and it might happen in yours too, that, that you receive an answer, you step out on a limb, and you receive the answer of no sometimes. The devastating thing is when we start to assume the answer is always no. The occasional no, God says, you know what though? He also says yes sometimes. And I don't know about you, but I want to continue to ask God for that yes. I want to continue to say to God, God, as your spirit's alive in me and as your kingdom is now, what does that look like in this situation? And so I do, I want to pray for healing. And trust God with the results, but one no isn't going to derail me from asking. We continue to ask and continue to risk and continue to step into the world and believe on behalf of other people that God just might paint a bigger picture of his story and his name for his glory through our lives. So what do you, what do you have to give? What do you have to give? I think we often think the life of faith is the big step, right? It's like, I don't know, I'm gonna give up everything and move wherever. And we often think, well, I can't do that. But you see, the life of faith is not the big step. The life of faith is the next step. The life of faith is the next step. So what's the spirit of God stirring in you? What is that next step? And what if we started measuring success on faithfulness rather than results? To follow, to walk with, to abide in Jesus. That's success. That's what Peter and John do. As the gospel takes root in their soul, they start to look out at all of humanity a little bit different and believe the kingdom of God is breaking forth through them. And hey, 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 it's breaking forth through you too. It's breaking forth through you too. So I don't want to give a ton of examples of what you might write on this little post-it note. There's pens in the back of the chair um, right beside you, right in front of you. But I'd love for everybody in here to, to ask God that simple question. God, what do I have to give? I love that Peter and John, they just, they just deflect glory. They're like, um, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, not in the name of Peter and John, but in the name of Jesus, like this is about him. This is his kingdom. This is his story. He's using us. It's Peter's hands, but it's God's spirit that does the work. And he deflects glory to God. So this isn't about you, but it's about how might your gifting, your story, the way God's wired you, build the kingdom. Build the kingdom. Would you ask that question? Would you sit in the presence of God long enough to hear him speak over you how he wants to use your life? Gold and silver? You may not have. But because the spirit of God lives in you, you have something. You have something. Are you willing to use it 
to press in. Let me pray for us and I'm going to give us some instruction. Spirit of God. I sense that you're, you're stirring us. You're working. So Lord, as we think about what you might do through us, I pray that we wouldn't write things that are, are too small, but that we would be obedient to you, Spirit. What do we have to give? In light of what you've given, what do we have to, what do we have to give? Would you stir that up in us? Would you let it rise to the surface of our souls today? It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Feels right to, to stay standing, even though we're not done. The end of the story. And leaping up, he stood and he began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping. Praising God. I always read myself into the story as Peter and John. And, and I think in a lot of ways, we are. But in just as many ways as we are Peter and John, we're also the beggar who sits at the gate. And the beautiful thing that we get to put on display with our lives is that as we lay there, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, reaches down to broken, helpless people like you and me and says, rise, walk. And that declaration of his did not come without cost. It was the cost of his body broken, his blood shed on the cross for you and for me. That's his lowering down his hand and grabbing ours and saying, I love you enough to make a way. So for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have gathered around this table to remember we're not just Peter and John, we're also the beggar at the gate called Beautiful that he rips open when he dies and says, my presence is now, my sacrifice is for you, I love you, you're mine. So we gather around this table to remind us of that fact. And so as we come, there's this this picture that's painted of this person who was ill being healed and he leaping, he stood up and he began to walk and he entered the temple with them walking, leaping and praising God. And as you come to the table this morning, if there's a little skip in your step, that's okay. You are the redeemed. The table is open to any 
who are followers of Jesus. If you're a visitor with us this morning and you know and love Jesus, the table's for you. If you don't yet know the Lord, we would ask that you would hold off until you come to a place where you trust him. And that might be right now. And see, that that word in the scriptures is called faith. It's actually quite ironic when we put faith in him and we realize as we reach our hand up to his that his hand already grabbed us. But if you want to put your faith, your hope, your life in the hands of Jesus this morning, we would invite you to come and celebrate his redemption and his table with us. So I'm going to ask our servers to come forward. There's a number of stations. There's a station right up front here on each side of the platform and then over to the sides of the room. But as you come, I hope you come leaping, dancing, praising God for the sacrifice he made to make you whole. King Jesus, as we celebrate your table, would you drive home even more the truth of the gospel that you saved and you redeemed people even like us. Wow. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.